Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Every Native American in Montana has a relative who went missing or murdered. This just keeps repeating itself over and over again. These young girls keep disappearing, and these young girls keep dying. The world's scary, especially in Montana, on the reservation. Children are going missing, they're getting murdered, and nobody's even batting an eye. Violent crimes have been on the rise. Murder, rape, homicide. We can't even find the last girl before the next girl goes missing. How many more of these girls have to die on these reservations before somebody does something about this? The reservation is an easy praying spot for anybody that wants to grab a girl for sex trafficking. They take our girls, traffic them, drug them, murder them, and they rape them. She was only 14. She was that young, and they didn't make it a priority. Nobody would listen to us. If a 14-year-old white girl froze to death in your neighborhood, there would be an inquest. If you want to get away with murder, go to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst in the Intelligence Cell. Now this week I'm joined by my very special guest Lonnie Coombs and we are going to be talking about murdered and missing in Montana. Now you can watch this really important documentary, it's available on Peacock and also on Oxygen and I strongly recommend that you watch it first and then listen to this conversation. Usual trigger warning applies here, so listener discretion is advised as we do talk through the detail of a number of the cases. And so without any further ado, here's my interview with Lonnie Coombs. Hi, Lonnie. It's great to have you back on Crime Analyst. And I said we were going to talk about your new documentary, and it's a really important one. We're here to talk about murdered and missing in Montana. It's really good to have you back on Crime Analyst. So hi and welcome. Well, thank you. It's always great to be here. And I appreciate being able to talk about this documentary in particular. It's such a critical issue for us. Yes. And why is it so important to you? I mean, it would be really good to hear just about the origins of, of the project, because when we last spoke, I asked, I asked you about it and you said, actually, we were doing this before Gabby Petito, before she went missing. And of course, a lot of the world woke up to the fact that if you are not white and you go missing, the, the media don't tend to talk about it. And there's this term, 
missing white woman syndrome that's been coined many moons ago. The media favour certain cases. So you mentioned to me that actually you were already working on this project, which I think is really interesting. So perhaps tell my listeners just a little bit about the origins of the project and why it's an important project to you. So this project had been in development for, oh, a year and a half, at least, uh, before Gabby Petito. As you know, Projects like this, people pitch the idea, then you know you have to go out and get a, get a production company and a network involved. And then it takes a period of time to go out and actually cover the cases, get the content, and then put it together. So at the time that uh, Gabby Petito went missing, we were in the editing phase of our case. In other words, we are our project. We had already gone out, we'd done the interviews, we'd done the investigation, and they were just putting the final touches on the editing and they had air dates already planned. And when Gabby Petito hit the social conscience, it was fascinating to see it unfold, but I thought it was very interesting that not only did her case explode, but there was this discussion that you talked about. People did raise this term uh, missing white women's syndrome, which I don't think most people had ever heard of before, even though, as you said, it was coined many years ago. And people were talking about what about all the women of color that are missing? Let's talk about those cases too. And what about all the other women who have gone missing in the same state that Gabby's gone missing in and no one's ever talked about these cases. So it was literally hitting right on the heart of our project which is this crisis that is going on in our uh, indigenous women community across the country, across America, the numbers are staggering. Um, I was asked to participate in this project and I had heard about, you know, sort of vaguely the issue of uh, missing indigenous women. But once I started doing my own research and my own work in this project, I was flabbergasted. I literally, the first time I read through these stats, I kept saying, these have to be wrong. They have to be mistaken. I'm getting these wrong. You know, they must be um, typos because the, the stats are when you think them through in your head are so frightening. And then you wonder immediately, why isn't anyone talking about it? Why isn't anything being done? So let me just run you through some of the stats. Native American women and Native American girls, we're talking about girls and women, are the most stalked raped and murdered of any women in any ethnic group in America. Now, I know you speak so much in your work about how women are stalked and raped and murdered. Now, let me put a face on those women. The ones that are the most victimized in America are Native American women. How often yeah. do we actually think about that or visualize that when we're talking about these stats? Right. Well, very, very rarely. Let me just react to that, because I think that's a really important point that oftentimes when we think about stalking and rape and murder, the images that we see in the media tend to be white faces. And you're exactly right. And the problem is that's what's put into our subconscious. So we don't see the names and we don't understand the faces. And what's more important, as someone said this to me recently, I bet you can't name three women of colour who went missing or who were murdered in America across the last year. Now, ironically, of course, well, it's not really ironic, but for me, yes, I can do that because of the work that I do. But if you put that poll to the general public, I don't think that they could. And I think that that's a really important point that 
out of all the women, you can't name three. So yes, we don't want to lose the fact that that is a really important point that we have to make and the media have to get better at reporting on all women who go missing. Because the other point is that we're not saying that white women shouldn't receive attention when they're missing and murdered. We're saying that all victims and all women should receive the same attention. But unfortunately, that's not what's happening. And I think with with the response to the Gabby Petito case, I think victims' families who have been dealing with this for years in their own lives were thrilled. They weren't upset that Gabby was getting this coverage. They were thrilled that someone was getting that level of coverage. They just want more people to. They want their families, their victims, uh, their loved ones to also get the same kind of coverage and interest in people wanting to find these missing girls, these missing women. Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be killed than the national average. So once again, these, these staggering stats, and here's a really interesting one. So for Native American women from the age of 10 to the age of 34, the third most prevalent cause of death is murder. Yeah, I mean, that's shocking. That's really shocking. For most women, the first top 10 causes of death, murder is nowhere near that. You're talking about health issues or perhaps suicides on there. I don't know the list, but, but, but murder, and it's the third most prevalent cause of death, all the way down to age 10, 10 to 34 years old in Indigenous women. Let me give you one more stat. 94% of Native American women will be raped or coerced in their lifetime. So if you were born and you are a Native American woman, the chances that you won't be raped or coerced in your lifetime are very small. You'll be one of the lucky few that Mm -hmm. that isn't. So that's the kind of crisis that we're looking at here. And when you talk about the media, There's been a number of issues as to why these cases haven't been covered. One has to do with the media. And and we know that there has been, you know, systemic racism in all areas, including our media, including our newsrooms, where women of color have not been covered. And if they are, if you look at the articles that that do cover them, the victims many times are described in negative terms, almost like it's their fault that they ended up going missing. So maybe they're not really worth our time looking for. It has that slant to it. Another part to this is law enforcement, because many times the resource that media gets their information from is law enforcement. And law enforcement has not historically done very well in informing the media or alerting the media to these cases. In 2016, this is according to the National Crime Information Center, in 2016, 5,712 Native American girls and women were reported missing in America, but only 119 cases were actually logged in to the Department of Justice database. So once again, we see right there, law enforcement has their own issues of not alerting people, passing this information on, even logging it into their own database. So this information is not getting out there. Yes, I think historically there has been a huge problem in law enforcement writing up these sorts of cases as runaway cases. Um, In particular, you know, when girls and women go missing, I've seen that a lot. And if you write them up as a runaway, therefore there's no crime and therefore there's no Amber Alert, for example. So 
one thing leads to another. And I think that that is a huge problem. And in fact, I've covered many cases, both on Real Crime Profile and been talking about them on Crime Analyst, where, well, actually more Real Crime Profile, where we've covered particular serial killers who've chosen the less dead, as I call it, females and male. But of course, it's more likely to be women and girls who are sexually assaulted and killed, and particularly when we're talking about serial killers as well. So it is violence against women and girls, and you can write these cases off very easily. And unfortunately, law enforcement do with very serious repercussions. So I have to say, Lonnie, that doesn't surprise me. I think, you know, the statistics since 2016, 6,863 Native American girls have gone missing in America. Now, they're the ones that we know about. There's also this grey area, isn't there? What about the ones that we don't know about, that no one has reported missing? This tells us about vulnerability, or it tells me about vulnerability. And of course, we know that predators prey on vulnerable groups because people don't ask questions about them. So, And we haven't really touched on sex trafficking yet, which is a key theme across your documentary as well, when we know that 40% of girls and women sex trafficked in America are Native American girls too. I mean, that's shocking. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? 
Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. In context, Native American women only make up less than, well, 0.7% of the population. Okay, so it's a very small percent of the population. And yet 40% of all the women and girls trafficked in America are Native American. Yeah. So once again, talk about predators knowing their vulnerable targets. Yes. You know, us as a society may not be aware of this crisis, but you better believe the predators do. You better believe the sex traffickers and those who are looking for victims know that if they target indigenous women, historically, they've been able to get away with it. Yes. I mean, it's it's really shocking. And I think people don't think about sexual exploitation and they think about trafficking as being something that doesn't happen in their own backyard. Of course, it can happen in a busy city. But when we're talking about reservations now, there are challenges, aren't there, just in terms of jurisdictions. And I have to say, I didn't really appreciate just the jurisdiction issue that you can have multiple jurisdictions, but actually no one's really taking the lead. So do you want to just explain a little bit about what you uncovered just in terms of jurisdictions and and the reservations in particular? Yeah, it's a very complex issue as far as law enforcement and their jurisdictions. And it has been a problem for many, many years and really needs to be fixed. Essentially on the reservations, you have tribal police. So they have authority over the reservations. Then you also have the local police that may cover that area as well. Then you have state police and you have the federal uh, law enforcement. So you have all of these different agencies and when they may come in to play or not is one issue. And then the other thing is they may point the finger at each other. Oh, well, you need to cover that. So we're not going to cover it. So historically on the reservation, if someone from outside the reservation, a non-native came onto the reservation and committed a crime, tribal police were not able to arrest or prosecute that person. So they would be literally having to wait for local law enforcement to come to the reservation and do an investigation. And many times if they called, no one came. We're talking about reservations that are massive sizes. The the Crow Reservation in Montana is 2.2 million acres. The Northern Cheyenne Reservation is 4,000 acres And each of them have less than six tribal police officers to cover those entire areas. Six tribal police officers for for that geographic expanse is just incredible. But there are still limitations, aren't there, even with those tribal police officers in terms of their powers, that they don't have authority to arrest. Right, right. Now, I will say that just recently there have been two U.S. Supreme Court holdings, rulings that look like they're going to expand the authority of the tribal police. So it slowly looks like people are finally starting to recognize we need to fix this issue. Uh, One of it is fixing the jurisdictional issues. And the other one is funding for more law enforcement in these areas, more deputies, because local law enforcement are also very understaffed as well. I mean, this is a problem we heard over and over again. So the federal government has been recently in the last few years starting to look at this and putting money there, you know, to put up sort of committees to look at it. And I say, take that money and just put it right into these departments and start hiring deputies, hiring and training them to do these investigations and look at these cases. That's, that's where we need that money to go. 
Well, that would make sense. I mean, the, the other issue is that Montana police cannot make an arrest on the reservation either. I, I have to say, I find that absolutely mind-boggling that given the fact that you've got so many problems going on in terms of young, let's talk about girls and, and women, and, and some of them are children, aren't they? I mean, certainly the three cases that you reinvestigate or re-examine on the docu-series... For example, Henny Scott was 14 years old. So we are talking about children going missing, which should be a priority area. And yet you've got police who cannot police and cannot make arrests. So, of course, it's going to attract sex traffickers, serial killers, all those who want to exploit children and women that no one really cares about. That's right. They're, they're literally falling through the cracks, these cases as far as law enforcement. And one of it is the jurisdictional issues. Another one is the resource issue. And another one is just an attitude, perhaps, that's been ingrained for a long time of, as you were talking about earlier, oh, they're just runaways, they'll come back eventually. Or, you know, they they died from hypothermia and, and really not look at these cases as crimes and murder investigations. But Lonnie, you show on your documentary that case after case, these girls don't just come back. In fact, one of the guys who was helping do the search in Henny Scott's case said, I go out and I conduct these searches. Not one of them ends well. We find body after body. You know, if you've got local people saying that, then of course this is a huge red flag. Isn't this just really obvious stuff? It's really obvious to the viewer, and that's what you're highlighting. That, And you do get, it's probably the most angry I've seen you on camera. You're pissed, and, and so am I, because local people are saying case after case, and you interacted with the families, and my goodness, how heartbreaking. They're talking about their daughters, they're talking about their loved ones, and that no one cares about them, even though that there are all these red flags and none of the cases end well. It's just... Shocking, quite frankly. And, and we know when you've got a young girl or a child who's missing, the clock is ticking. So you've got the issue about not reporting them soon enough. But then you've got the issue about once they're reported, you've got a ticking clock. And we know that the first 72 hours are really important. In fact, a 2006 child abduction murder study out of 600 cases showed that 76% of missing children, well, the child is dead within three hours of the abduction. And in 89% of cases, the child was dead within 24 hours. So you've got a ticking clock. And you've also got on these reservations weather issues, right, extremities, so you've got multiple factors that compound and therefore you've got to prioritise these cases and not just write them off. That, that's the really alarming thing to me. We're talking about children and young women. What are they doing? Mm -hmm. You have, and, and in the case you were talking about, hey, Scott, this is a 14-year-old girl. Imagine a 14-year-old girl in your neighbourhood or your family going missing. The response that would happen from your family, from the community, from law enforcement, everyone would be out there looking and searching. Henny Scott's family went to two different agencies and couldn't get either one of them to do anything. So they ended up having to go out and search for her themselves. And they're the ones who found her. Henny was my granddaughter. You know, as a parent, as a relative, as a tribal president, you know, it angers me. Imagine if it was your daughter and it took 21 days to get back from the authorities. No one should be laying out there for three weeks. 
It's not acceptable. It's outrageous. You, you think about Natalie Holloway, where in fact people went to Aruba under their own steam to help search for her. And yet you've got zero interest in asking the right questions about these cases. And, and it broke my heart listening to mum and dad talk about her. And in fact, you know, show on camera, well, these clothes, she was wearing these clothes, but mum says these weren't her clothes. So even that should pose a question where if they're not her clothes, whose clothes are they? Where her body was found was 200 yards away from the house where she was last seen. Well, it's clear that she wasn't lying out there for all that time. So therefore, where was she? These are really important questions that need to be asked. But have they been asked? They've been asked. They're not being answered. This family, Henny's parents, and, and, and this was, again, you have a 14-year-old and they're being told she, she went to an after-school activity with the permission of her parents. Later in the afternoon, she called home and said, hey, I want to go to this party. Can I? Mom said, no, you need to come home. She said, okay, I'll come home. They never hear from her again. So they start looking for her. They end up going to the police and the police kind of give them the, oh, you know what? She'll show up. She's 14 years old. Okay. And they don't seem that concerned. The family keeps looking, keeps looking. Law enforcement's not doing anything. So they go to another agency and report it. Still nothing. They continue to look and continue to look. And 21 days later, they're able to determine where that last phone call came from. It was a specific house. They went to that house. They searched all around that house. They got their family members to come help. And they found her, as you said, they found her body 200 yards away from the front door of that house. And when the family asked law enforcement questions, nothing was answered for them. Not about where she'd been, the state of her body. They finally gave her a box of her belongings, which they said these were the clothes she was found in. And as like you said, uh, Henny's mother said, these aren't her clothes. The underwear was hers, but the other clothes were not hers. Why were they on her body? Whose clothes were they? All these questions. They tried to have meetings with law enforcement. They either were told no, or they were canceled at the last minute. They had so many questions and no one was answering them. And like you said, just built in there, there are huge investigation questions that were never answered. And as far as we can tell, never investigated. Unbelievable. Henny Scott's body was found 21 days later, 200 yards from the house. Was it visible from the front door or from the actual house itself, that particular area? Yes, yes. It was a flat area of ground and her body was just there on the ground. So it's clear that her body wasn't lying there for 21 days. Well, so that's um, a question that we have that's covered in the documentary we end up doing an exhumation of Henny's body. Her parents are so desperate for answers that they didn't get, that they actually go against all of their cultural beliefs and have her body exhumed to try and get answers. And that's one of the uh, questions that they do get an answer to in the documentary from the exhumation. But to have to go through an exhumation because you can't get the answers from law enforcement it's not right. Hugely traumatic for the family and having to make those decisions. And yes, you had Dr. Cyril Wecht um, oversee that exhumation. And what did he conclude? Can you share just for the, my listeners who haven't seen the documentary, was there something significant that he concluded that you can share with them? 
Yeah, Dr. Wecht was able to answer that question for Henny's parents. He said that based on the lack of animal activity uh, on her body, that appeared to him that she had not been there that entire 21 days. Yeah, and I think that he does talk about it, and it's something that I talk about in lots of different cases. You know, what you would expect to see is animal predation. And as horrible as that is, it's important to understand that actually had a body have been left there for that and exposed for that amount of time, there would be signs of animal predation. And that's, it's not always what's present on a body, it's also, or, or the remains, it's also what's absent. And so that again is significant, isn't it? It raises more questions. And unfortunately, there aren't answers for the family as time and distance, time moves on. And her case, it just appears to me, just wasn't prioritized at the time. That's right. And and still hasn't been. It, the fact that they turned the clothes back to the family without any investigation into the clothing, especially when the family was saying, this isn't her clothing. Whose clothing is it? You know, they could have started asking people whose, whose clothing is this and, and gotten some more information, but they, they didn't do any of that. It's just, you know, to me, just unconscionable. So awful for the family just to have their daughter's death not taken. And, you know, death, was it that she walked out of the house? Let's even hypothesize that she, as teenagers do, they go to house parties and she walks out of the house and then she collapses or somehow gets into into some kind of trouble and she doesn't manage to make it back to the house. Well, that's a possibility, but it's highly unlikely given that we're talking about 200 yards, you know, and with teenagers and house parties, normally one doesn't just wander off on their own. And if they've left, then normally friends ask questions about that. So I think the key point is someone does know something And of course, teenagers, we know, sometimes don't want to share things because they don't want to get into trouble. There is that, you know, what's the biggest fear for teenagers? But it's really important people do talk about these cases. And I hope that your documentary has really shed some light on these particular cases so that people do start to talk and perhaps some key information will be forthcoming based on what you uncovered I mean, it just strikes me having watched the documentary that's on HBO, Black and Missing, where you've got two incredible advocates in um, Derricka and Natalie Wilson. And I, I don't know if you've seen Black and Missing on HBO, have you? Not yet, but I plan to. It's Yeah, it's supposed to be amazing. It's really worth the watch. I've watched it a couple of times now. And, and Derricka is a former police officer, the first African-American police officer in the particular area that she was living in. And then Natalie Wilson, her sister-in-law, they're a sister-in-law team. She works in PR, in marketing. And so together with a law enforcement background and, and marketing, they can build that bridge and ask those necessary questions and keep the pressure on law enforcement. But they do it, Lonnie, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this. They do it in a very quiet way as in they're not angry black women, because we know that if you're angry and you're a female, you just get ignored. And particularly if you add in you're of colour, you're just typecast as a crazy person. So they make the very clear point that they're very calm and measured when they're having conversations with law enforcement and they're making key inroads. And it's really important that you do have advocates there who are asking difficult questions because families can't, they're in the midst of a crisis 
How are they expected to be able to ask questions of law enforcement and know what the processes are and who can arrest and who can't arrest and just all the issues that, that come with? So, you know, as a victim's advocate myself, I know the value of having us talk to police and other agencies and also be able to get media exposure you know, onto cases. And media is just so important. And that's the whole point of the Black and Missing Foundation is to show that media is required because of the critical windows of time. And now with social media, there's no excuse, is there? You can put things on social media and therefore get word out. And on Crime Analyst and my own account, I'm always reposting cases so that the people who follow me can repost and retweet cases. And that's how cases are solved. So let's talk about Kisera stops pretty places because eight months later, Kisera, she had just turned 18, hadn't she, when she went missing. She was also at a party. And again, not unusual. And that's not me casting any blame. I mean, teenagers go to parties. There's no nothing unusual about that. But she was celebrating her 18th birthday. And the point of saying that is that she's still young. And she's young and she's gone to a party and she disappears. She's reported missing the next day. And she's found some days later, isn't she? Five days later in a neighbor's garden. What more can you say about what you uncovered in Kaysera Stops Pretty Places in, in her case? One of the really egregious things about Kaysera's case was she went missing on August 24th, 2019. She was found August 29th and just a yard away, essentially, in the backyard of a house right next to where the house was where she had been at this party. They were celebrating her 18th birthday. And essentially what happened was in the night, it got a little rowdy, perhaps. And so a neighbor came out and like flashed his lights, like you're getting too rowdy. And so they all sort of dispersed and ran off. And she was last seen running through the backyard. So when she didn't come home, her family started to look for her. And five days later, they hear that a young woman has been found in this backyard. So some family members go, they realize it's just one yard away from the house where she'd been. They talked to law enforcement. By that point, the body was still there, but it was being, you know, starting to be transported. They talked to law enforcement and said, we have our daughter, our 18 year old daughter, she's missing. This could be her. And they were, they were just brushed off. No, no, it's not her. No, it's not her. It's not her. Now, if they had just said, oh, what was she wearing at the time she went missing? They could have looked at the clothing on the body they had just found, and it matched. The pants was the same description that they'd given, the top, her hair color, everything. They could have at that point answered the question of these frantic parents, where's my daughter? But instead they were pushed off. So they went out and they continued to search. For two more weeks, they continued to search, thinking that their daughter may still be alive, she's being hurt, she's being whatever's happening to her. And then finally they get a phone call from law enforcement saying, by the way, that body that we found, that's your daughter. The way the victims' families were treated in, in these three victims' cases was just so egregious and so painful and further traumatized them for what they were going through and did just the opposite of helping the investigation. It hindered it in every way. So it's just shocking that they would not have done some type of interview or just asked a few simple questions of the family members that came to the scene where this young girl had been found to verify if that was their loved one or not. But that was not done. 
horrific. I mean, we're talking about really basic things not being done, aren't we? And that tells a story. That tells us that these girls and women are not being prioritised, that law enforcement, and I'm going to say it, has no interest in investigating and asking questions in these cases. And it's so traumatic for families to feel that they just don't matter and be so desperate in those moments and to have two weeks where they knew or well, they didn't know when they could have known what had happened, where you're still frantically searching and, and asking questions. I mean, that's unfathomable to me, uh, utterly outrageous. And of course, we don't know what time. Well, she was found five days later, wasn't she? So do we know anything about her body and the state that it was found in? So two years later, law enforcement actually put out a public report of an investigation that they had done into this case. Now, most likely this was done after this case started to get a lot of public attention because a number of these cases started to. And at that point in that document, that written report, by the way, they misspelled her name on every page of this report, the victim. I couldn't believe that. You pointed that out in the documentary. I mean, at least get the basics right. But my goodness. The victim's name of all things. But in there, it did say that they had done some um, investigation into the animal activity in her body, uh, the insects, as you had talked about. And based on that, they had determined they believed that she had been there in the location of that backyard for most of the time, essentially a number of days. In other words, that they didn't believe that she'd been taken somewhere else and brought back there. That's the kind of level of investigation that should have been done right off the bat on every one of these cases. Right. Why does it take two years of outrage and pain for the families and other people getting involved and the law enforcement being called out to get any type of of response that way? And even then, they said this was still an ongoing investigation. They weren't giving a final conclusion. They were still determining it to be undetermined. So we don't know. Still don't have any official answer in that case, but that but, that eventually was done. Right. I mean, I remember from the documentary, because I watched it twice as well, actually, um, that she had alcohol in her system, which is what you would expect, given that someone's been at a party and they've turned 18. I mean, most teenagers would go out and celebrate that. So that's no surprise. Do we know whether they found anything else in terms of cause of death? And of course, there's a question asked by the investigator of whether GHB or that there was any form of uh, date rape drug used. Was there anything else that was found that was significant that they sh- that was made public? The only thing was that she did have alcohol in her system. She was a 0.14 blood alcohol level and that the cause of death was undetermined. Right. And of course, there's no way now of doing anything further because her, well, she was cremated, wasn't she? Which again is against culture. And and this too, Laura, was shocking to me. So the medical examiner is the same person who runs the mortuary. Now, right there, that seems to me like a conflict of interest. And there's been some yep. issues uh, going back and forth there. But apparently he told the family when they came to see their daughter and to take her body that because of the level of decomposition, he would not release the body unless they cremated her. Why? 
why is the huge question, right? Why? And that goes against, again, their, their cultural beliefs, their spiritual beliefs, but because they wanted to be able to take their daughter's body, and this is what they were being told by the medical examiner, they agreed to it. So she was cremated. So no further investigation can be done on her body. Wow. I mean, the fact that that condition was placed, I mean, what business is it of his to to stipulate that? That, for me, raises questions about what state her body was in, what happened, as to why he made that stipulation. And it absolutely seems a conflict of interest, but to have to go against their culture. And of course, they probably wouldn't know any different, Lonnie, at the time. You know, you just want to get your loved one back and you want to be able to as I always say, it's not closure, but you want to take the next step and to be reunited with them and to be able to put them in a place where you can go and visit. So they probably wouldn't know that that's an unusual, um, well, it's an anomaly, actually, isn't it? And that it probably should have been challenged at the time. That's just staggering to me, I have to say. So Kaysera's case, unfortunately, there's nothing more that could be determined. But then, of course, you've got Selena, not afraid, who was 16, and she went missing. Now, in the documentary, you do talk about the fact that she is the 28th young girl to go missing in the county. Can you say anything about the time period of, you know, she's the 28th? Are we talking about in a year or two years? Or can you remember the time frame? I think it's that that's just as many as they have documented. So it's not clear exactly how many years that goes back. But just in our cases, it's from 2018 to 2020. So we have three girls and they go, one goes missing each year and is found dead. And, you know, there's even some overlap that you hear one of the people in the documentary say, we don't even find the first one before another one goes missing. I mean, that's how often they're going missing. And mind you, this is one county. Yeah, This is one county, Bighorn County in Montana and 28 girls. If that was my county, And 28 girls had gone missing. People would say there's a serial killer, you know, praying here or something. People would be talking about it. There'd be coverage, but not here, not in this one. Yeah, I mean, certainly questions need to be answered about that. And and just going back to Kaysera, actually, I listened to an interview with her cousin, who is a policy researcher, and she actually collects data. I mean, all her work is about ethnography and collecting data. And she makes a very important point that data must be collected to be able to shape policy and to inform what's going on. But that data has been very slow in being compiled and put together. And I think it is really alarming that Bighorn County has the highest numbers, which does it does infer there's something going on. So numbers and patterns drive action. I know that. I used to work at New Scotland Yard. It's exactly what I did, putting cases onto a database, examining patterns of behaviour, looking at whether we had linked cases, whether they were abductions, rapes or murders. And I know exactly how and why that's so important. If you don't have data, you can't say that there's a problem. You can't talk about trends. You can't talk about patterns. So it really is important. And then she also talked about the issue of classifying cases wrongly, that cases were being classified as exposure, suicide, runaways, which of course masks, as we talked about before, what's really going on. So yes, that is alarming in one county and alarm bells should be ringing. Now, Selena, not afraid, had been out with 
friends again, hadn't she? She'd been at a house party. And this case is even more alarming in some ways because she posts something on Snapchat. She posts a video of her in a van from the next day and her friend does call law enforcement and says what's happening. And she was put on hold, which, again... You know, you can say hindsight's twenty twenty, but even someone to take the step to call police is a big step, particularly when there's mistrust in a community, when you don't talk to law enforcement. That's a huge step for, for her friend to do and then to be put on hold. But everything about her case it just screams red flag, doesn't it? It does. Selena was 16 years old. She was um, very sharp. She planned to go to college. She got great grades. She wanted to enter the Miss World Indian pageant. She was planning to do that. She was excited about that. She had gone to a New Year's Eve party, actually, and spent the night. And then the next morning called her uh, family and said, you know, can you come pick me up? And so they were on their way to pick her up. When they got to the house, they said, oh, she's gone. She left with some other people from the party in a white van. And then they get a phone call saying, go to this rest stop. She's there. And so the family's thinking, this is very strange. They go to the rest stop and they search and search and search and they don't find her anywhere. And so they call law enforcement and they call family members. And this time we're talking about 2020, right? So there's more people are finally starting to get a little more involved. They get uh, a law enforcement response. There's actually a, a fairly massive search that is instigated for her. And they've got um, dogs, they've got drones, they've got people on horses. They lay out a very sophisticated grid search to make sure that you know all the areas are covered thoroughly. They have a trailer come out and set up there at the rest stop to coordinate all of these searches. And they do this for 20 days every day searching for her and nothing. And finally, after 20 days, uh, law enforcement decides we're, we're not finding her. The weather's getting worse. They pack up, they take the trailer, everybody goes home. And the very next day, her body is found not far away from the rest stop again, within a mile of the rest stop. And it's just laying out there uh, and she's deceased. Unbelievable. I mean, to me, no coincidence that they wrap the search and the next day that she's found. It's, it's just unconscionable. And yes, there was a new law that came in, which meant a special team was put together. But this is also where she was last seen was a trafficking hotspot. So again, it's no coincidence, is it? And perhaps because there was activity, perhaps those who took her decided to leave her. I mean, we don't know what happened or how it happened, but I think the fact that she got in this van, she messaged a friend, she wasn't heard from after that, and yet everything goes back to this trafficking hotspot. I mean, it, it's just really alarming. And why law enforcement put the friend on hold and didn't take it seriously, I mean, that was the point of intervention, wasn't it, where actually something could have been done, and it just screams lack of priority just writing cases off or maybe not seeing the urgency or asking the right questions when the friend called. And we don't know, of course, what she said, but it just strikes me that even a phone call like that would be an unusual type of call. And to me, that was a crime in action. Even though it may not have been described as that, that was a crime in action that should have been given some priority. 
and utterly horrific that her body's then found. And of course, there's more questions than what we've got answers to. And I think law enforcement also was assuming that when her autopsy came back, the toxicology, it would show that she perhaps had drugs or alcohol in her system because she'd been at a party, you know, somehow to put, again, the blame on the victim, right? Well, big shocker, when it comes out, the results weeks later, she had nothing in her system, no alcohol, no drugs, nothing to be able to put the blame on her, pass the responsibility. Instead, that should have been, again, another reason for them to investigate further. Mm. But you know what, Lonnie, even if she did have alcohol in her system, you know, we know that victims are blamed left, right and centre, you know, and, and discredited. But again, it shouldn't make any difference whether somebody has alcohol in their system or not. It's, Agreed 100%. But I think law enforcement uses it as they an do. excuse. And I think they did that on the prior two cases. But once again, what I'm saying is, like you said, it doesn't affect the investigation and it shouldn't from the very beginning, there should be investigations done, right? You don't wait for the toxicology to come back, regardless of what those answers are. You need to be doing the investigation immediately. That's when you're able to gather evidence. That's when there's still evidence to be gathered. You don't wait and say, oh, well, don't worry that, you know, the toxicology will come back and then we don't have to worry about it. I I just don't understand investigations being done this way. I, I don't. Well, it sounds to me that investigations aren't being done. And, and that's the point. You know, if somebody has al- alcohol in their system, it to me, and as I train law enforcement, I always say that points to vulnerability. It means that they are further rendered vulnerable and you have perpetrators who exploit that. And therefore, you can't keep writing people off because there's a vulnerability there. It's exactly what traffickers exploit. They give young girls and women alcohol. They give them drugs. They tap into girls and women who are from homes where there isn't money, where they're not financially well off, where, you know, perhaps there's not a father present or perhaps uh, they're not taken care of. And I mean, we've talked, well, I will be talking about it with um, regarding Epstein and, and Jelaine Maxwell. It's It makes young girls vulnerable to grooming and being exploited. And it's exactly the reason why more must be done not less. And, and as you said, Lonnie, at the point where somebody is reported missing, that's when it should happen as, a, an, as an investigation, not waiting for a body to be found and to then have the medical examiner say what the toxicology results were and then questions being asked. That's way too late. And of course, in some cases, there's nobody found anyway. So it just, again, smacks of a very laissez-faire approach to investigations and not taking cases seriously and there being a profile. You know, Selena, not afraid, 16, she's still a child. And we're talking about children and therefore there is a duty of care. And these cases should be seen as a priority. It should be ramped up, not just written off as if they don't matter. I, I can't even imagine how that feels for the family, but I'm, I'm glad that you made this documentary I think shedding light on the cases, because these three cases, really, they're a drop in the ocean, aren't they, in terms of cases? There are, there are many, many more. I mean, just with Gabby Petito's case, nine other bodies were found during the search for Gabby Petito. 
And that just tells us that there is this huge problem that we're just stumbling into cases rather than any form of proactivity. Now, you did mention the task force. Does that task force cover Montana specifically as well? Or is it it's a national task force that covers all areas? Can you just say a little bit about the task force? Sure. There's actually two that have been created recently. In 2019, Operation Lady Justice was created essentially to try and get the discussion going between the different agencies to talk about what can be done about this crisis. And then in April of 2021, the murdered and missing unit was created. And this is supposed to provide leadership to try and make cross-departmental and interagency work and cooperation better and to essentially try to end this violence against these women. But they're sort of, they're federal agencies. So they oversee the whole country. They're kind of broad in their mission statement. The one good thing is there might be money, you know, there might be money, but let's see it filter down. Let's see it being put to, to use on the ground level where it really needs to be needed. And the other thing too, is, you know, there just has to be, as you kept talking about the, the attitude change, there needs to be a, a, a swell of, honestly, one of the most effective things is public sentiment, right? People speaking out to help change attitudes and approaches. And then also resources. I mean, these deputies are, are there's just too few of them to um, be able to handle these cases. And, and I don't know what the training level is, but something needs to be done. Absolutely. It needs to be seen as a priority. And it, you need local task forces, I mean, it's great to have an umbrella task force that can help with knowledge and expertise, but really you need boots on the ground, don't you, doing the, the work locally, um, locally owned, locally resourced, and ensuring that that attitude change happens because it starts with attitude. We, we know that in our work. It starts with who's a worthy victim, not you, not you, not you, but you. And there's so much more that can be done now, particularly with media and social media. You know, that's also another important part when people go missing. So, I mean, there's just so much more that we could say about this. There's lots of grey areas. And I think, you know, a lot of it does come down to the fact that people see some cases as more worthy than others. And I hope that there is now a change and that it's not just this sort of blip that happens and I think Gabby Petito's father was very humble, actually, and showed a lot of humility when he, in the midst of his own crisis, was spotlighting other cases, the cases of, of girls and women and people of colour who've gone missing that receive no media attention. And that is an incredible thing to do when you are in your own chaos and crisis of your daughter missing so there's a lot more that podcasters can do in terms of spotlighting cases. I mean, for me, I want to try and get some of the advocates on and task force um, members to talk about a little bit about the task force so that we understand it better. But I'd like to follow up and ask more questions, just given your oxygen documentary. So for listeners, you can watch Lonnie's documentary on oxygen. It's also on Peacock. Is there anywhere else where it can be watched, Lonnie? The easiest place is to go to Peacock because it's a streaming service, so it's available at any time. I think you can also get it through the Oxygen app, so there are different ways to find it, but I think the easiest way is to do Peacock TV. Yeah. 
Definitely check it out. And in the documentary, Lonnie, you talk with Phyllis Firegro as well, who's a former tribal police officer. And again, really interesting what she has to say. But more importantly, her sister went missing as well on a reservation. So she has personal experience. And I think just the stats that you gave tell us that most women will have a personal experience. And that is shocking. No, no one should be born into any ethnic group with the feeling that they are going to be victimised because of their race, because of where they're born. I mean, that just must be... It, it's oppression of the worst kind. And with attitude, that's where we start to create real change. And I really hope that people do watch your documentary. Um, is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap the episode that we haven't discussed or maybe didn't make it into the documentary that you think is important? You know, I just wanted to follow up on that point that you said about Phyllis. Every person, every person that we talked to had a loved one, whether it be a daughter, a sister, a mother, a grandmother, an aunt who's gone missing. Every one of them has, has been touched by this. So they are living with it. Think of the trauma of going through that Think of the trauma of living continually, having that person, that significant person in your life missing and many times found murdered, and then to continue to pass it on and knowing that if you have a daughter, that she's going to live under the same oppression. It's overwhelming for them. And mm -hmm. um, I think as humankind, we need to step up and, and do something about it. Hear, hear. And I think on, on that note, we're wrapped because I think that's a really important point that we can all play our part. It just sh shouldn't be happening. So thank you for shedding light on a really important issue. I mean, approaching it from the statistics and they're the cases that we know about, but also spotlighting the important cases. And I hope that there is some resolution to them. And I thank you for your work again, Lonnie, and for, for joining me on Crime Analyst. So thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Okay, I'm jumping in here. I really want Lonnie to have the last word. And so I'm going to remind you all to be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. I came here to understand why Indigenous women are going missing and being murdered at alarming rates. Now, having listened to the families of Henny, Kaysera and Selena, I feel their hopelessness and their pain. And I feel their anger about what is happening to these children. <laughs> These girls go missing, and it appears that no one searches for them. They end up dead, and no one seems to be interested in bringing anyone to justice. Change needs to happen. This needs to stop, and we all need to help. my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Adam Gross. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.